It's that time of the week again. You are about to participate in a great adventure. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop? What the hell do you think you're doing? It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris. Oh my God! As they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. I wouldn't do that if I were you. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. It's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. As well as the music of today. Excuse me while I whip this out. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Who are those guys? Digital Kill the Radio Star starts. Come on, quit stalling! All right, everyone, welcome back to a special edition of the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. I am David, as always, and... Uh, Chris couldn't make it, unfortunately, this week, but uh, we have a, a really, really cool guest uh, this week. Uh, Greg Prato is an author, and he's written a ton of books, one of which we talked a lot about on this podcast, uh, Grunge is Dead, and he has a new book coming out November the 19th called Take It Off, Kiss Truly Unmasked. So it's a real honor to, uh, to welcome to Digital Kill the Radio star, Greg Prato. Greg, how are you? Good. Thanks, David. I appreciate uh, having me on. All right, Greg. So... Um, we always kind of like to ask people the same uh, first two questions on here. What's your earliest memory of music, and who was your first favorite band or artist? Uh, earliest memory of music was probably my parents uh, listening to either music on the radio or my dad's uh, 8-track collection. He had a, a pretty good collection that included uh, Jim Croce's Greatest Hits, um, Seals and Croft's Greatest Hits, and then uh, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, and then... I also remember enjoying uh, the song called Silly Love Songs from Paul McCartney and the Wings that my mom uh, would play on the uh, radio. And the first uh, band that I ever liked just happened to be Kiss because uh, I was in kindergarten and my friend at the bus stop showed me Kiss cards. Uh, there were, were these Kiss trading cards. And then my mother was kind enough to buy me the first Kiss record as a kindergarten graduation gift. So that was my first favorite band right there. Wow, so you got into kind of the harder rock at a very early age. Yes, very, very early. I remember, uh, since I saw pictures of Kiss first before actually hearing them, I had no idea, or I guess in my head what I expected them to sound like didn't sound like the record. It didn't, it didn't match up to the, the visual to the music since I was only, like at that point, five or six. Mm-hmm. So it took me a little while to kind of catch on, but I'd say within like a few months I became a, a pretty big... Uh, Kiss fan, and then within like eight, maybe like a year later, I started going back and uh, trying to get all the rest of their records. Did you grow up in the New York area? Yes, I've always lived on Long Island, New York. Okay, so you had you had probably ample opportunity to see them um, when you were growing up, since that's kind yeah, of their I home was, their home market, and you know, yeah. some of their most famous shows are, are there. Um, 
before we do get to the book, I do want to ask you this because I, I, I'm really interested to see how, how you work this. Like I said, uh, Chris, my co-host and I, we were really familiar with that book, Grunge is Dead, which we thought was excellent. Kind of, in my opinion, it's like the definitive book of that genre. And we used it uh, in an episode. Uh, it was basically like, did glam metal kill glam metal or did grunge kill it? And ultimately glam, you know, killed it. But grunge came along and grunge kind of suffered the, the, the same fate as well uh, in like 96, 97. But anyway, that was our first exposure to you. And uh, it was really evident that you're a great writer, but you're also just a big music fan like the rest of us. Where did you, and how did you decide to combine those two loves writing and, uh, and, you know, rock music? What's funny is in school, I was always good at writing and also uh, English I was always good at and uh, also spelling. But for some reason, I never put two and two together and thought of becoming a uh, book author or a a journalist. It was uh, in the late 90s, I took a job as a customer service rep at a now defunct music magazine. And it was through that job that I saw how easy it was to be a writer and uh, that place didn't want to give me a shot as a writer so I left them and I just so happened at that point it was uh, the boom of the whole entire web thing with you know writing for websites and stuff so I was able to start freelance writing right away and as far as books it wasn't till about 10 years later that I uh, made the jump to books which I kind of regret because I guess I just always assumed that writing books would be very difficult but um, like at the time in like the early, in the in, in the late 2000s, I was already writing pretty regularly for Classic Rock magazine, and the features for that for them did take a lot of interviews and also a lot of uh, work to put into that. So, doing a book, I mean, it, it's not as little work as doing a feature for a magazine, but it's kind of a, a book I look at as pretty much just a glorified uh, extension of a feature for a magazine. Kind of is how I look at that. So when you're deciding, what goes into your process of deciding like who to write a book about? I know uh, you, you've obviously done Grunge is Dead. You did one on Shannon Hoon. Uh, you did mm-hmm. one on Eric Carr. Uh, obviously, uh, you've got this one coming out, uh, Take It Off, Kiss, Truly Unmasked. Is there is there a process you go through? And do you, do you is one of the, the predicates you have to be a fan of that band? Or have you written some about bands that you weren't necessarily that familiar with? Yeah, that's actually a good question. And I was just going to point out quickly, too, because you mentioned that you were a fan of the uh, Grunge is Dead book. I just recently, about a month ago, put out a self-published book called Dark, Black and Blue, The Soundgarden Story, because Soundgarden is one of my all-time favorite bands. And uh, I thought they were lacking with uh, books written about them. So I put out a book, which I'm pretty happy about. I actually, actually had that on my list to ask you about, but you you, you got that already. So Okay. <laughs> yeah, so we can, we, we can talk about it uh, in, in detail a little bit later. But yeah, to... Uh, answer your question. <clears throat> I've been lucky that all the books I've done, it's been a, it's a topic that I was a fan of beforehand. I've never done a book yet where it was a topic that I didn't really know that much about or I wasn't a fan of. So pretty much, um, you know, I'll just take a look around to see if uh, it's a artist or something that hasn't been written about to death. I mean, that said, last year I put out a book about Queen, which is my which is my my uh, all time favorite band. And I know there's been a zillion Queen books, but with this book, which was called Long Live Queen, I uh, interviewed a bunch of renowned rock musicians and got quotes of them talking about Queen, what they love so much about them, and also if they ever saw them in concert and their favorite tracks and everything. So I, I can, I guess, take a topic that's been done to death and try to spin it around a little bit so that it's not a similar like history of Queen type book. You know, so that's what I did with that book. 
But um, and also with my books, I usually follow what's called the oral history format, which is it's a bunch of quotes pertaining to a certain subject. So, for instance, with the book <clears throat> Grunge is Dead, which was in the oral history format, uh, it'll be the topic will be Soundgarden, Bad Motorfinger, and it'll be the band talking about Bad Motorfinger, uh, producers, fans of the band, other members of bands. So you get it's almost like a documentary in. Uh, in book form, so you, and you're also getting the story straight from the people that were there as well. Well, that is that is one of the the things I really liked about the book. Your uh, publisher sent us a copy probably about a month ago, and I knocked it out in about a week. And and, and Chris, my co-host, he knocked it out in about the same amount of time. And uh, it's really interesting because uh, I'm personally not a real big Kiss fan. I've seen them three times, uh, twice with Ace and Peter, and then once on this last tour. I'm, I'm a casual fan. Like, I don't know the, you know, the deep cuts. I know the hits or whatever. But I, I, with that said, I'm fascinated by rock documentaries and rock books. And I love the process that you went through on this one with each album, um, you know, after post, post makeup, and you talked to people that recorded it, toured with it, worked with them, and then you also uh, you got in touch with some famous musicians that were impacted by those records. And so um, I really recommend the book, even if you're just a casual Kiss fan. But uh, what made you decide to write a book about the post-makeup era? Is it because the other part had just been done to death and this really hasn't been covered this extensively? Yes, uh, exactly. You're right. Uh, most of the Kiss books that have been out there that focus on the history of Kiss, uh, they kind of just gloss over the uh, the non-makeup era. Like there was a, a book, it was a uh, official Kiss book that came out about 10 or 15 years ago called Kiss Behind the Mask. And that does touch upon the non-makeup era, but it's primarily through uh, Gene and Paul's eyes and pretty much uh, they're the main voices talking about those albums. So with this book, Take It Off, Kiss Truly Unmasked, what I tried to do is I tried to interview people at length that were not interviewed as much, such as Bruce Kulik, who was Kiss's guitarist from 1985 through 1996. I also interviewed a few of their producers, such as Ron Nevison and also Toby Wright. Yeah, Toby's been on our podcast before. Super nice guy. Yes. And I also interviewed, like you said, members of also bands that are somehow linked to this era, such as Charlie Benyante from the band Anthrax, who toured with Kiss, also Derek Sherinian, who was uh, Kiss's touring keyboardist for the Revenge Tour and later was best known as the keyboardist for Dream Theater, and he's currently in like several different bands. And also, uh, one of my favorite bands of all time is uh, Faith No More, and I interviewed the bassist Billy Gould because uh, Billy was member of a one-time band called Shandy's Addiction, which was part of the Kiss My Ass Kiss Tribute album, which I had... had that. <laughs> Yes, which had Maynard from Tool and um, Tom Morello from uh, Rage Against the Machine on that track. They, they covered Calling Dr. Love, which is a, a great cover. It's probably my favorite Kiss cover ever. I thought they did a fantastic job. So, yeah, so uh, pretty much with this book, it's, um, you know, the story of, the, of that era from 1983 through 1996. And we go album by album. Uh, each uh, thing includes a sort of album review, album background thing by me. Then we go to two brand new interviews pertaining to that album from someone associated with that album. And then I also interviewed a gentleman by the name of Kurt Gooch, who put out one of my favorite Kiss books of all time, which is Kiss Alive Forever, The Complete Touring History. And for each album, he talks about what was special about that tour. 
And then also there's one or two different uh, little special things I just threw in there, such as um, I spoke to a uh, book author named Martin Popoff, and we go from 1983 through, 19, 1983 through 1996, and he talks about the three top metal albums of that, of that year that uh, was not a Kiss album. So you're getting a idea of what Kiss's competition was at that point. And it's pretty interesting to see how much metal changed during that period. I, I'd go as far as saying... 1983 through 1996, that was probably metal change the most. If you think you go from 1983, you go from Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil, and Quiet, Quiet Riot, Metal Health. Then to 1996, you have Marilyn Manson and also Sepultura. So that's such a huge, huge, drastic change. I think at that point, in a in a yeah in a fairly quick amount of time, it it went. Um, what surprised you the most that you learned when you you know gathering facts about the book? Like for instance, for me. One of the things that stuck out to me was that being a casual fan was that Ace didn't really play a lot on Creatures of the Night. There were a lot of other people that played. What was something like that that stuck out to you when you were researching? You know, I kind of knew a lot uh, beforehand going because I'm definitely a, a major like Kiss junkie when it comes to reading all the books that come out and everything like that. So, but one interview that was very interesting. I interviewed a gentleman by gentleman by the name of Mitch Weissman who co-wrote several tracks with Kiss during that uh, era. From He wrote with them uh, on the Animalize album and also the Crazy Nights album. He wrote about four, I think three or four songs. <clears throat> Actually, I'm pretty sure it, it is it is four songs. And he had some very interesting things to say because he was, beside just a writer, a songwriter, he was also friends with them. So he told me a really interesting story that he helped them pick out the picture that eventually became the uh, Look It Up album cover because he was on the phone with, uh, he was at Paul Stanley's apartment in New York City at the time, and they were on the phone with Gene, and um, they were going through the pictures, and they couldn't pick out a picture, and then Mitch saw a picture, the only one of Gene sticking his tongue out, and he said, that's the one you have to use because you're connecting for fans the old you know, era of Kiss with this you know, new era that you're trying to launch. So that was very interesting. I didn't. I had absolutely no idea about that. And also, he told me an interesting story that uh, he was just getting his foot in the door with becoming a songwriter, writing with Kiss. And Paul Stanley recommended to the band Bon Jovi, "Look, I know this really good new songwriter. You should reach out to this guy." And they're like, "All right." So John Bon Jovi and I think also Richie Sambora reach out, reach out to him, and said, "Look, we're working on this album. We'd like you to uh, maybe come with us and you know try to like, write some songs." And Mitch said, "Well, I'm very flattered, but..." I'm having trouble trouble right now with my um, marriage, and I really need to just take some time off and just focus on this. And Mitch said, uh, within a year or so, his marriage broke up, and that album went on to be Slippery When Wet. So wow, <laughs> so he, he definitely missed out on a, a pretty big uh, thing right there. I think, which he's probably kicking himself for. All right, one of the things, Greg, I wanted to ask you about is uh, first the first thing: what was Kiss's original connection to Bob Kulik? The original connection is interesting. It uh, at when they uh, when Gene and Paul and Peter was already in the band, they were a trio and they were trying out lead guitarists. This would have been in 1973, either late 72 or early 73. It would have been about, and they had a open uh, a open cattle call with all these guitarists coming down. They put a uh, ad out in the uh, paper. I think it was the uh, I think it was Rolling Stone. I was going to say Village Voice. I'm pretty sure it was Rolling Stone at the time. And actually, maybe it was Village Voice. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, they had a bunch of guitarists come down, and Bob Kulik was one of the guitarists, and uh, they thought he was good. 
But I think right after him, uh, it was actually Ace that came down. And with Ace, when, as soon as he plugged in, I remember you know, reading past interviews with Gene and Paul, they said automatically they knew that they found their man. So that was uh, Bob Kulik's uh, first introduction to Gene and Paul. And then he kept in contact with them. And then uh, he played on the um, side four of Alive 2, which is the studio uh, recordings, which are, which are uh, absolutely fantastic, especially his leads on a song called uh, Lar Larger Than Life has one of the best Kiss leads. And it's actually not Ace. It's actually Bob Kulik. And then from that, he uh, kept in contact. He played on Paul Stanley's solo album in 1978. He played on a few. Uh, he played on the original songs on the Kiss Killers tribute album. Excuse me, the Kiss Killers compilation album in 1982. And then he, of course, uh, recommended to uh, Kiss that they should give his brother Bruce a look. And then eventually Bruce played on the Animal Eyes album on a couple of songs and then eventually replaced Mark St. John in late 1984. Well, if they had such a long connection to him, and it seems like just from my casual knowledge, I've I've read a, a, another book on Kiss, and I completely forgot the name of it, to be honest with you, but why was he never asked to be in the band? Because it seems like they had faith in him, and they kept going back to him, especially for like solos and things like that. Was it, was it something about his look, or, or was it something more than that, that they ever asked him to be in the, the band? I have to probably say that you hit the nail right on the head. I think it was his look because although he's very talented, he's stark bald. Mm -hmm. So, and he's been as bald for as long as like I've when I first saw he's like I don't know when he you know went bald, but he's been completely bald for as long as I've seen photos of him. Probably since like the early '80s or mid '80s is when I first saw an actual picture of Bob Kulik after seeing his name mentioned in like you know song credits and stuff like that. So I think that probably had something to do with it. I mean, I guess he could have just worn like some kind of like long-haired wig or something. But what's also interesting is um, when Bruce Kulick started playing with Kiss on the um, <clears throat> Animal Eyes album, he did a couple of uh, session uh, solos for them. Uh, Paul Stanley told him uh, when he was leaving the studio, he said, whatever you do, don't cut your hair. Meaning that they must have at that point realized they're already having troubles with Mark St. John, who was their guitarist at the time. And that also shows how much image and also look is to Kiss, you know. So that's something that I think is probably very high on the priority list with them. All right. So I know Mark St. John was just there for a cup of coffee. Was the and I, I remember reading about this in the in your book. Was he let go because of his playing, or was it because his playing was suffering from the health condition that he was that was progressing? You know, it's honestly, I think, a combination of things that we can, it, it, we're probably never really going to hear the true, true story, because sadly, Mark St. John passed away about 10 years ago. Uh, but from what I can understand, it was a combination of things. It was, number one, he had a rare form of arthritis that affected his hand. It made his hand, like, it blow up, like it got swollen. So he couldn't play, so, that, so he couldn't tour, and that's when they had... Um, Bruce come out and uh, tour, and they actually had Mark St. John uh, on the side of the stage in case he felt well enough to come out and play. And he played, I think, a he played half of maybe a few shows, and I think he may have played only one full show, but it became apparent that he wasn't really meshing with them, either look-wise or maybe personality-wise. So they wound up going with Bruce. And uh, something else, too, which, uh, which is also interesting, I believe also Eddie Trunk points this out in the book, um, Kiss just came, uh, the previous Kiss guitarist was actually Vinnie Vincent, and he's considered one of the top shredding guitarists at the time, and Kiss 
did not want or or, or, or Kiss when, when you think of Kiss you don't think of shredding guitarists right and uh, they interestingly went with Mark St. John who was in fact a very shredding type guitarist yet I've seen interviews with Gene and Paul where they they say that that's a criticism like you know we tried showing you know, we he would play a guitar solo and we said oh you know play it again and he said oh I, I can't play the same solo again or they would tell him to slow down and he wanted to keep doing shredding solos but you know then why would they have hired him i don't know so i guess maybe it may have just been maybe just they hired the wrong guy and they should have just hired someone that was more of a melodic type guitarist which in fact bruce was so that's why bruce when they hired him wound up being in the band for so long as he was well greg one of the overriding themes of the book is that during the 80s and the 90s the band was clearly chasing trends the whole time and they seem to be a few years behind. Uh, I know specifically they told Toby Wright, who uh, kind of made his name uh, being an engineer and producing uh, those Alice in Chains albums, that they wanted to sound more like Alice in Chains. Starting going back, I guess, with Dynasty, with some of the disco-type tracks, can you think of another band that's just as... they don't even try to hide it that they're trying to chase the trends as much as Kiss does? Yeah, you know, I, absolutely right. Kiss throughout the '80s was chasing trends. Um, you could go f- from each album to each. I mean, with with the way they dressed, it was obvious that they were following like the hair metal, glam metal bands. There's songs like there's a song. It, it's a song no one really knows about, but it's on the Hot in the Shade album. It's called "Read My Body." That is a exact rewrite of Def, Lepper, Def Leppard's "Pour Some Sugar on Me." Uh, and there's also a song called Let's Put the X in Sex that sounds very similar to Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love. So, yeah, so you're you're absolutely right with that. As far as another band that made it as a parent, that's tough to say. But to Kiss's credit, while they were doing that, they were able to retain their fan base and, you know, score a gold and platinum album. So... If I were, I, I, if I really rack my brain, I probably could think of bands that have tried to change their sound and look, but, but weren't successful. As whereas Kiss did follow trends, but was able to still somewhat keep pace with you know the Motley Crues and the Poisons at the time. So, can't really think really of a band that followed trends as much as Kiss. But I will give Kiss credit that they were able to stay relevant and they were able to stay popular doing so. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, they're they're definitely adaptable. Um, if if anything, yeah, that '80s period. A lot of people came on board then. I'm I'm 43, so uh, my first exposure to them that I can remember was the uh, Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits era. You know, uh, and then I guess uh, they, that was right after uh, Crazy Nights. But um, there are a lot of people I know, like Chris Jericho. He's like a massive fan of just the '80s. You know, mainly the '80s stuff. Do you feel like there's a lot of people that kind of draw a line? Um, maybe people that are a little bit older kind of laugh at the 80s, and then uh, maybe some of the people that are fans of the 80s era kind of look back at the 70s and say that was too cartoonish? Or do you think, for the most part, most KISS fans embrace all the eras? Yeah, it's interesting. Some uh, are just staunch 70s, or they just want the band in makeup. Then there's other people that really like the 80s a lot more, and then there's people that like it all pretty much. So me personally, I definitely lean more towards the seventies and I really lean towards the original, uh, Gene, Paul, Ace and Peter lineup. But, uh, that said, I was a fan of kiss throughout the eighties, like when these albums were coming out. 
And uh, although I don't listen to 80s Kiss as much as I listen to those classic albums in the 70s, I definitely do. I, I can definitely appreciate the 80s for what, for, for what it was. And uh, something that I think I mentioned in the book, if you were to take a lot of those 80s albums, there's at least one or two or three songs on each album that if you were to strip away the 80s poppy, glossy production and it, it was a more and if it was a more raw production, some of those songs would measure up pretty well to like the rock and roll, uh, rock and roll over album or the hotter than hell album, which is really raw sounding in your face, live sounding type stuff. So I think that that was maybe, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, like that's something that I think Kiss should have done is like, we talked about how they were, uh, following trends. I really wish that they would have maybe been their own band and, you know, kind of just followed th their own path like they were doing in the seventies. But you know, again, you know, it's uh, it's also easier for me to say that for my position. I'm not, you know, the band. I'm not trying to make a living doing this and everything. So it's obviously easy for me many years later to, you know, kind of they call it mon they call it Monday morning quarterbacking, sort of, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so you know, I can kind of see what they were doing with the '80s, and they they uh, I think definitely succeeded. But yeah, for me personally, I think I probably prefer the '70s more more than anything. I feel like they really missed out. There's a song on Crazy Night that should have been hit, a huge hit, Turn On The Night. Yes. Um, that, to me, well, we did a Kiss episode a couple of months ago, and the, one of the guys on um, told us about that song. We listened to it, and it would have fit great in, like, an 80s uh, teen movie, you know, during yeah. during a scene or whatever. But right. I really feel like they missed out on that. Well, you know, they're obviously on what they're calling a farewell tour right now. Do you think they're really going to call it quits? And if they do, do you think there's going to be a touring band without Gene or Paul in it? I think there will be something, uh, some kind of kiss in the future without Gene and Paul. And um, I think that in the future, uh, it's tough to say. I mean, maybe it'll be like Gene touring by himself doing kiss songs or... You know what? Also, Bruce uh, Kulikow I also uh, interviewed uh, pretty pretty heavily for this book. Take it off, kiss truly unmasked. What he's doing is he uh, is touring as part of, or not touring, but he plays on on these Kiss cruises, and he's put together a, a great band that does nothing but '80s Kiss, mm -hmm. and uh, that's something that maybe Gene or Paul may want. Maybe they would hook up with Bruce and do a tour like that, but um, or maybe Gene and Paul tour just by themselves maybe like touring theaters and doing like Q and A's with fans and they get up and they do like, you know, unplugged type stuff. Right. So, so you know, that's always a possibility. But, um, as far as, uh, for instance, Gene, Paul, Peter and Ace getting together and doing a full tour, I think that's totally out of the question that, um, that I don't think is ever going to happen. Maybe Gene, maybe Ace and Peter coming on and doing like a few songs maybe would be a possibility during this last run. But, I, I have a feeling that this this uh, could probably be it for Kiss because first of all they're they're getting older, and um, you know Paul Stanley to me is one of my favorite uh, rock singers of all time. I think his singing in the seventies and even eighties was great, but you could tell sadly that now his voice isn't as strong as it once was. And, and I'm not, you know, putting, you know, I'm not, I'm definitely not bad mouthing him. It's just that's just something natural that happens with age. So. Yeah, I, I could see why they're bowing out and whether they'll maybe do one-off shows or something like that, that's always possible. But I would think it probably makes sense for them just to call it quits for good after this. Well, the book is called Take It Off, Kiss Truly Unmasked. It comes out on November the 19th and you can 
pre-order that, uh, I think pretty much any place, um, you can go online and, and get books or when it comes out, go to the actual bookstore and get it in your actual hand, um, and support, uh, the local bookstores. Greg, do you have another book in the, that you're working on? Well, yeah, well, I, I just mentioned before the book, uh, Dark, Black, and Blue, the uh, Soundgarden story. Do you have any questions for that? Because I wouldn't mind chatting about that. Oh, again. yeah, sure. Actually, um, do you think they're going to get in the Hall of Fame? First question. Well, I think they definitely will get into the Hall of Fame one day, whether it's this, uh, whether it's t- uh, 20 or not, that I'm not sure about. I think, personally, for me, Soundgarden by far was my favorite grunge band. In fact, um, my favorite band of all time is Queen, and I will say number two is Soundgarden. Uh, there is, cause the, the, cause the reason being with Soundgarden, I was able to, uh, discover them kind of early on. I became a fan of theirs in 1989, 1990. So I was with them and, and I was with them through most of it and also able to see them actually tour at the time at the peak of their powers and, you know, get the albums when they came out and experiencing it all. And it was really, I'm, I'm very lucky to have seen as much sound. I, I, I must've seen Soundgarden over the years. 10 or 12 times and I've also become friendly with also Kim the guitarist mm-hmm. so I'm very very happy about that that's just great from like a fan point of view and um but yes they should have been the first grunge band in I think for, for me personally they they are the top grunge band um I mean I of course love Nirvana I love Pearl Jam I love Alice in Chains but if you ask Pearl Jam I'm pretty sure all the Pearl Jam guys they, they would have said Soundgarden should have been the first band in uh, as well uh and you know it's still and the, the the main reason why i did this book uh called dark black and blue the Soundgarden story is uh i really still to this day am so affected by uh, the death of chris cornell because he was just such an incredible talent uh he seemed like he was a great person a great father a uh, great husband uh incredibly talented one of, one of the best singers it's just very sad so what I talk about in the uh, prelude to the book is I talk a little bit about how the main reason why I did this book is to kind of just come to come to grips a little bit about. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm never going to get to the bottom or fully understand why Chris did what he did, but just to kind of put into into perspective and maybe just try to kind of make sense of it all. And and I have to say, when Chris when the when Chris first uh, died, it was hard for me even to listen to Soundgarden music, but. One definite plus by doing this book and doing all the research and doing all the uh, uh, phone interviews for the book was I actually forced myself to listen to Soundgarden again. And I have to say that it's held up wonderfully. And you know now, now I can listen to it and kind of put it all in, in perspective. And uh, Soundgarden's music, I'll put it up against pretty much any other rock band ever. Well, and sadly, a lot of times it takes a death like his to make... Uh, everybody really appreciate what we had. I mean, I think he is a top 10 voice of all time. And I put him up there with, you know, Rod Stewart, Paul Rogers, uh, just uh, an amazing voice. And you can go back and listen to some of those um, uh, acoustic songs he did and even some of those covers. And he just, he can move you with his voice in a way that honestly, very few people can. Yeah, I would say he was only maybe outdone by possibly Freddie uh, Freddie Mercury, I think. Um, but like Freddie Mercury, Chris Cornell could sing a wide variety of styles. So that's what makes him so special. Um, yeah, absolutely. I put him up there with Robert Plant, Ronnie James Dio, Rob Halford, uh, Jeff um, <clears throat> Buckley. I, I put him up there. I was also a huge fan personally of uh, Shannon Hoon. I thought he was a phenomenal talent that uh, also died way, way too soon. And, and like you mentioned before, I did a uh, 
book about him about uh, about maybe 10 or 15 years ago called uh, A Devil on One Shoulder and an Angel on the Other, the story of Shannon Hoon and Blind Melon. And uh, yeah, Shannon Hoon was great. But yeah, Chris Cornell was a uh, once in a lifetime talent. Absolutely. Greg, it's almost as if you have x-ray vision and you're looking at my list of questions. <laughs> because uh, We actually, uh, our next episode is going to be episode 100 and Roger Stevens is our guest. And oh, nice. uh, he, we are, we recorded the interview a couple of months ago and actually went to see them about, uh, probably about a month ago and we were his guest and, and got to hang out with the band backstage. Um, I was going to bring up the book, but you've already brought it up. Um, have you had a chance to see the documentary? Yes. I was lucky enough, um, uh, Dan, Danny Clinch, who is the uh, famous rock uh, photographer, uh, he was kind enough to personally uh, invite me down. Uh, it was in April. They had a, a viewing of it here in um, <clears throat> here in. It was in it was in Manhattan. I forget the name of the place, but it was uh, oh, it was, it was during the uh, Tribeca Film Festival, and I was able to. Uh, see a viewing it was in, in the audience was actually the band and also Nico which is Shannon Hoon's daughter and also Shannon Hoon's um, girlfriend was there so it was definitely a very uh, intense thing to be watching that film knowing that you're in the that in the audience is Shannon Hoon's uh, daughter and everybody but yeah it's a phenomenal uh, film I hope it gets a uh, wide official release soon because uh, it, it it is a very eye-opening and it, it, it's a eye-opening documentary, and it's a very big roller coaster type of documentary that you see the highest of the highs with him, and you see the lowest of the lows. Like they they actually have footage of him speaking on the phone just maybe two or three hours before he sadly died. So it's a it's a phenomenal documentary, and um, yeah, it's and the the, the documentary is called uh, All All I Can Say, and. Uh, I highly recommend if anyone gets the opportunity to see it in the future, definitely check it out. Yeah, definitely a, another person gone way too soon. And I often think to myself, what could, what would that band have become had he stayed around? Because they were they were one of the most unique bands to come out of the '90s. One of the most unique bands I've ever heard. Period. Yes. If I, I often when people ask me what my all time favorite album is, I usually go with Blind Melon Soup because that's an album that never seemed to have gotten the credit that it deserves. But it has uh, similar to albums like. The Stooges Funhouse and maybe and, and like like those types of cult albums it's developed a huge cult following and um, if, if these if people listening to this aren't familiar with that blind melon soup album I highly recommend it but be warned that it's not gonna hit you right away it's an album you have to listen to a bunch of times and then it'll definitely hit you one day and it'll become a favorite well Greg I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, getting to chat with you and I really appreciate you uh, taking some time out on this Friday afternoon to uh, talk to me Sure. Thank and you very much. If you'll hang on just a second, I want to get some information from you. And I want to tell everybody uh, the book is called Take It Off, Kiss Truly Unmasked, Greg Prato. Go online and get it. Even if you're a casual Kiss fan, I, I promise you it's very interesting. Uh, it's a unique uh, It's a unique take on this period, the way he interviews people that were in the band, people that worked on the albums, people that were on tour with them. It's, it's really a good read. And so uh, I do want to thank Greg for joining me uh, this week, and we will be back next week with Episode 100 with Blind Melon's Roger Stevens.